Well, I wonder if you are a Christian here. Uh, when was the last time you talked to somebody about Jesus? Uh, we've just heard some really encouraging news about our Conversation Cafe over the last few months. It's been really exciting to, to see that develop and uh, see people encountering Jesus and considering the claims of Christ. But maybe today you can't actually remember the last time you had a meaningful conversation with somebody uh, about what it is that you believe. Uh, and there could be a number of reasons for that. Uh, there's the obvious reason that we've spent a lot of time over the last couple of years in isolation and with things like homeworking, some of those uh, impromptu conversations that might have happened in the past, they're kind of off the table right now. Or it could be that you're not quite sure what to say. What if someone asks you a question that you don't have an answer to? Or it might be, and I suspect that this is maybe the case for uh, many of us, uh, we're just a bit fearful. Uh, we're afraid of how people might react. Uh, will they be offended? Will they reject us? Will they look down on us? Uh, and yet we know, don't we, that, that we have a message that people desperately need to hear. Their eternal destiny depends upon it. And so when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to sharing our faith, often we can end up in a place where we feel pretty weighed down by our fears and our failures in this area. Uh, thankfully, that's not where we need to stay. The passage that was just read to us is a wonderful example of what evangelism looks like. Sharing our faith is all about an encounter with Jesus, giving people the opportunity to meet him. Because it's when people meet Jesus that lives are transformed. And that's what we see happen in John chapter 4. So just to set the scene, uh, Jesus is traveling through an area known as Samaria. And his disciples, his closest followers, they leave him by a well and go off to find food. While he's sitting beside the well, weary and thirsty from the long journey, he encounters a woman who has come to the well to draw water, and he asks her to give him a drink. Now, that may not seem particularly unusual to us, but in the culture of Jesus' day, this was an extraordinary conversation to be having for a variety of reasons. And the woman, she certainly picks up on that. Notice what she says, verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? So she is really surprised that Jesus would make such a request. For a number of pretty complex reasons, the Jews had nothing to do with Samaritans. So for a Jew to be in conversation with a Samaritan and ask for a drink from them, well, that would certainly have been frowned upon. But for this particular situation to go down, well, this was bordering on scandal. Here was a Jewish man speaking to a lone Samaritan woman. This would not have been appropriate. And what would have made it even worse was the kind of woman that she was. For her to be visiting the well on her own at noon, when women normally went in groups in the morning before the heat of the day, that tells us that there was something going on with this woman. 
She was an outsider in her own society. She had transgressed the moral standards of her day in some way. She would have been known as a sinner amongst her own people. And when that word sinner was used in that context, it was, a, it was to cast a moral judgment on someone, to see them essentially as beyond the pale, beyond hope. And so for Jesus, a Jewish teacher, to be anywhere near this woman, that had the potential to seriously damage his reputation. And yet Jesus was willing to enter into conversation with her. He was willing to cross every barrier that existed at the time. Race, gender, culture, morality, you name it, Jesus crossed those divides. I wonder if that is what you would expect Jesus to do, to be so willing to enter into conversation with a sinner. Now, that word sinner is a pretty loaded term in our Western society, isn't it? It's often used by someone to take the moral high ground. In our culture today, perhaps the greatest sin is to make any kind of moral judgment on someone. Anyone who says that there is a right way and a wrong way to live is seen as judgmental and dangerous even. Because those kind of truth claims, they clash with the highest value of our culture. My freedom to be whoever I want to be. And yet alongside that value, very confusingly, we live in the age of cancel culture, where someone can find themselves cast out of society if they don't observe the moral norms of the moment. Moral judgments are being made all the time. It's just that the standards of morality are constantly shifting. Uh, when we first started planting this church just over 10 years ago, Christianity was largely seen as irrelevant. And the idea of planting a church was uh, kind of seen as a bit bizarre. Why would you start a church when churches all over the place seem to be closing down? Uh, our views were seen as outdated, uh, but generally the view was that if that's what you want to believe, well, that's okay as long as you keep it to yourself. Fast forward to 2022, and many people see the presence of a Bible-believing church as something that, that really has no place in our society today. We shouldn't be surprised if a church buying a brand new building on the busiest street in Scotland uh, meets with opposition. So how do we engage with a world that sees Christianity as dangerous, who views our presence as unwelcome? Well, as with everything, we look to Jesus. Jesus was willing to risk his reputation to engage with someone who had been cancelled by her culture. In fact, he earned the reputation of being a friend of sinners. And that wasn't a compliment. But he didn't just welcome the cancelled. He invited those doing the cancelling to encounter him as well. You see, the Bible's view of sin it doesn't allow anyone to take the moral high ground because it says that everyone is a sinner, that there is no one who by their own efforts is good enough for a perfect holy God. 
In the chapter just before this one, John tells the story of another uh, conversation that Jesus had. It's an encounter with a religious leader called Nicodemus. Uh, Nicodemus was a total contrast to the woman at the well. He ticked all the right morality boxes. He was a Pharisee, someone who was held up in his society as an upstanding religious member of the community. If you were to pick someone who you, you thought might be acceptable to God, Nicodemus would have been the guy. And yet Jesus explains to him that his religious credentials couldn't save him. In verse 3 of chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus that for someone to be right with God, they needed to be born again. And the only way for that to happen was to receive the gift that Jesus offered. And it's the same gift that Jesus offers this woman in verse 10 of chapter 4. If you look with me at verse 10, uh, Jesus says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, of course, we live in a country where we have no shortage of water. But imagine living next to a desert where you knew what it was to experience real thirst. The, this woman uh, Jesus met at the well, she knew what it was to be thirsty. She needed water to survive. And Jesus was saying to this woman, I have something that you need. The water from this well will meet your physical needs, but I have a water that you need for spiritual life, a life that lasts not just for a few years on this earth, but forever. It's a water that will satisfy you from the inside. Jesus says there, verse 14, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is saying that what he has to offer will bring a deep and lasting satisfaction that is not based on our external circumstances, but fills us up on the inside. Now, if we were to ask our friends or our colleagues or our teammates what makes for a satisfying life, well, there would be all sorts of different answers to that question. A comfortable life, a successful career, status, in society, a, a happy family, regular holidays in the sun, a, a place for Scotland at the World Cup. Those are the kind of things that people strive for, the kind of things that for many people are attainable, except if you're a Scottish football fan. They're the kind of things that are meant to, to bring us happiness. They're meant to, to satisfy us. But notice all of those things they're all outside of us. They are external to us. We think that if we can only reach out and grab them, then we'll be happy. Then we'll have significance. But Jesus says that there is nothing outside of us that can truly satisfy the thirst that exists deep down in every one of us. A few years ago, the comedian Russell Brand uh, was interviewed by Jeremy Paxman, uh, and it was a fascinating interview um, that you've, you can find online if you want to look it up. And he, and he said this about uh, fame. He said, fame, the initial thrill of achievement is like acquiring a pair of shoes that you'd long craved, then realized 
that those shoes are too tight. They aren't that comfortable, and you want another pair of shoes. Walking around in these things isn't the same as I thought. It would be. And then you realize you need nutrition from a higher source, something more valuable. Then he says, a celebrity in and of itself is utterly, utterly vacuous, like being presented with the most glorious meal, but when you eat it, there's no taste, no sucker, there's no nutrition. It's tiresome. Pursuit of fame will only result in dissatisfaction. Growing up, all I wanted to be was famous. And now I am famous. What does it mean? Ashes in my mouth. Russell Brand, he gained the one thing that he longed for, and yet he found that it didn't satisfy him. And the Bible says that the reason for that sense of dissatisfaction is because we all have a God-given longing for something more, something deeper, something more lasting. The book of Ecclesiastes in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 tells us that God has set a longing for eternity in our hearts. And Jesus is saying here that he is the one who can satisfy that longing. The gift that he offers is himself. He is the source of this living water, the source of eternal life, the one who can give us true and lasting satisfaction regardless of our external circumstances. And so as we invite someone to encounter Jesus it's really helpful to remember that we are speaking to someone who is made in God's image. And because they're made in God's image, they have that God-given longing in their hearts. Now, that longing may be buried very, very deep. There may be all sorts of worldly comforts and pleasures that have been put in place as distractions. But that longing is there, even if it's at the very bottom of the well. And it's a longing that can only be satisfied through the living water that Jesus offers. Now, in the midst of their conversation, Jesus, he suddenly changes the subject. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Uh, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So Jesus exposes the reason for her noon visit to the well. The reason that this woman had a reputation in her village was because of her history with men. Now, why would Jesus do that? Why would he speak so directly to this woman about her past? It's clear from her initial short answer that she didn't really want to speak about it. But Jesus, he, he carries on regardless. He, he details her history of, of broken relationships. Why do that? Well, this is the kind of confrontation that our world hates. It's the kind of thing that makes us shy away from sharing our faith because sooner or later we know that if we faithfully introduce someone to Jesus, then we are going to need to talk about why they need to meet him. See, Jesus isn't simply the answer to the longing in each of our hearts. He is that, but he is also our Savior. We invite people to meet Jesus because we need him. We need him to save us 
because we've sinned against God. We've rejected him. We've, we've chased after other gods, and we deserve his judgment. But God, in his grace, offers us salvation in Jesus. Uh, the hymn, Amazing Grace, probably the most famous hymn that has ever been written. What is it that makes God's grace so amazing? Well, the clue is in the first line of that song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. God's grace is so amazing because we are wretched. We are completely undeserving and desperately in need of his grace. And it's amazing, it is wondrous that God in his love and grace would save sinful people. By exposing the woman's sin, Jesus was showing her that she had been drawing from the wrong well that she'd been worshiping the wrong God. She'd been seeking satisfaction in the wrong places. This woman, she knew that heart longing, and she'd sought to fulfill it looking for love. She'd made love and acceptance by men her God. But instead of bringing the happiness that she longed for, it had left her cut off from her community, looked down on by her society as a sinner, forced to come to draw water at the least sociable time of the day. It was a God that had failed her. It hadn't given her the satisfaction that she longed for. Now, imagine a complete stranger recounted the history of your life. How would you react to that? Uh, well, you'd probably put it down to some fairly extensive Google stalking. But 2,000 years ago, that wasn't an option. There was only one explanation as far as this woman was concerned. She says to Jesus, verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. In the Bible, prophets were people who were given messages from God to share with his people. And this woman recognized that Jesus was no ordinary guy. And so she asks him a question that got to the heart of the divide between Jews and Samaritans. It was a question that related to, to who had it right when it came to God. Where was the temple, the, the place of worship meant to be? And Jesus explains in verse 21 to 24, that a time was coming when there would be no need for a temple at all. That the true people of God, they, they wouldn't need to go to a physical location to worship him because God would be everywhere. He would dwell inside his people by his spirit. Uh, the woman, no doubt trying to get her head around what Jesus just said, she responds, verse 25, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all things. So both the Jews and the Samaritans had long been waiting for the Messiah, God's great king promised in the Old Testament. This uh, figure who would come and save his people from their enemies and give them their land back. But the military Messiah that, that they were expecting was way short of what the Old Testament had promised. Jesus makes the astonishing claim in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. He claims to be God's chosen king, but he was so much more than the king that the Samaritans and the Jews had hoped for. He didn't just come to, to save them from a few enemy troops and give them a land. He came to save them from the penalty of sin and give them living water, eternal life. 
That's what he offered this woman. And that's what he still offers to anyone who will receive it today. He offers so much more than what you think you need. And this woman, she can't keep this news to herself. Verse 29, she goes into the town to tell the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And we learn in verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. This woman, she shared her story of her encounter with Jesus, and it led to many lives being transformed. And that's evangelism, inviting people to meet Jesus, sharing your story of how he changed your life, and trusting God to reveal himself as people encounter the message of salvation. What is that message? Well, one of the beautiful things about this story is that this woman, this, this outcast, she heard of the living water that Jesus offered because Jesus was at the well that day. Why was Jesus at the well? Because he was thirsty. The astonishing claim that, that John makes at the beginning of his account of Jesus' life, and it's the claim that's absolutely central to the message of salvation, is that God came into this world in the person of Jesus Christ. The reason that Jesus can offer eternal life is because of who he is. He is God on earth. John tells us in John chapter 1 verse 14 that the word, uh, God the Son, became flesh and dwelt among us. The creator of the ends of the earth was born into this world and experienced what it was to be human. He knew what it was to be thirsty during his 30-odd years on earth, and he knew what it was to be thirsty in his death. At the end of John's account, in John chapter 19, we read about the death that Jesus died. And we read there of some words that he uttered on the cross. In verse 28 of chapter 19, as he hung dying, he said, I thirst. And he wasn't just talking about physical thirst. He was experiencing experiencing a deep spiritual thirst as he bore the penalty for sin. Jesus went thirsty on the cross so that anyone who trusts in him could receive the living water that never runs out. The Christian message says that there is nothing that we can do by our own efforts to be right with God, to be good enough for him. In the sight of a perfect, sinless, holy God, we all come up short. We are all sinners. But wonderfully, it also tells us that God has done what we couldn't do. Jesus went to his death so that people like Nicodemus and people like this Samaritan woman, people like you and me, could know what it was to experience in the living water for ourselves. We could know what it was to have our deepest longing satisfied. And we could know what it is to experience forgiveness. We could know what it is to experience salvation from sin. And we could know what it is to experience a joy and contentment that transcends our circumstances. A joy and contentment that will never end with the one who went thirsty so that we don't have to. Let's pray together. 
Father God, we thank you for uh, this passage. We thank you for the wonderful blessing it is to know that anyone can encounter Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you welcome sinners. You welcome those who realize that they're sinful, and you welcome those, Lord, who maybe see themselves as good people, Lord, but we thank you that you reveal yourself even to them, and you reveal yourself to us, and you invite us to know you. And so we pray, Lord God, that you give us confidence as we share our faith, confidence that as people meet Jesus, lives are transformed. Lord, we pray that during our time here, Lord, as we serve you here in Leith, that you would give us opportunities to speak your name, to point people to you, and you give us boldness and confidence to, to show people Jesus so that they might meet him too. And we pray these things in his name.